Chapter Eleven of the Story of the Atlantic Telegraph. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Atlantic Telegraph by Henry M. Field. Chapter Eleven: Excitement in America. Whoever shall write the history of popular enthusiasms must give a large space to the Atlantic Telegraph. Never did the tidings of any great achievement, whether in peace or war, more truly electrify a nation. No doubt the impression was the greater, because it took the country by surprise. Had the attempt succeeded in June, it would have found a people prepared for it. But the failure of the first expedition, added to that of the previous year, settled the fate of the enterprise in the minds of the public. It was a hopeless undertaking, and its projectors shared the usual lot of those who conceive vast designs, and venture on great enterprises which are not successful, to be regarded with a mixture of derision and pity. Such was the temper of the public mind, when at noon of Thursday, the 5th of August, the following dispatch was received. United States Frigate Niagara, Trinity Bay, Newfoundland, August 5, 1858. To the Associated Press, New York. The Atlantic Telegraph Fleet sailed from Queenstown, Ireland, Saturday, July 17th, and met in mid-ocean Wednesday, July 28th made the splice at 1 p.m. Thursday, the 29th, and separated. The Agamemnon and Valorous bound to Valentia, Ireland. The Niagara and Gorgon for this place, where they arrived yesterday, and this morning the end of the cable will be landed. It is 1,696 nautical, or 1,950 statute miles, from the Telegraph House at the head of Valentia Harbor to the Telegraph House at the Bay of Bulls, Trinity Bay. And for more than two-thirds of this distance, the water is over two miles in depth. The cable has been paid out from the Agamemnon at about the same speed as from the Niagara. The electric signals sent and received through the whole cable are perfect. The machinery for paying out the cable worked in the most satisfactory manner, and was not stopped for a single moment from the time the splice was made until we arrived here. Captain Hudson, Messrs. Everett and Woodhouse, the engineers, electricians, the officers of the ship, and in fact every man on board the telegraph fleet, has exerted himself to the utmost to make the expedition successful, and by the blessing of divine providence it has succeeded. After the end of the cable is landed and connected with the line of telegraph, and the Niagara has discharged some cargo belonging to the telegraph company, she will go to St. John's for coal, and then proceed at once to New York. Cyrus W. Field The impression of this simple announcement it is impossible to conceive. It was immediately telegraphed to all parts of the United States, and everywhere produced the greatest excitement. In some places all business was suspended. Men rushed into the streets and flocked to the offices where the news was received. At Andover, Massachusetts, the news arrived while the alumni of the Theological Seminary were celebrating their semi-centennial anniversary by a dinner. One thousand persons were present, all of whom rose to their feet and gave vent to their excited feelings by continued and enthusiastic cheers. When quiet was restored, Rev. Dr. Adams of New York said his heart was too full for a speech, and suggested, as the more fitting utterance of what all felt, that they should join in thanksgiving to Almighty God and the Venerable Dr. Hawes of Hartford, let them in fervent prayer, acknowledging the great event as from the hand of God, and as calculated to hasten the triumphs of civilization and Christianity. Then all standing up together sang, to the tunes of Old Hundred, the majestic doxology, Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. 
Thus said Dr. Hawes, We have now consecrated this new power, so far as our agency is concerned, to the building up of the truth. In New York, the news was received at first with some incredulity, but as it was confirmed by subsequent dispatches, the city broke out into tumultuous rejoicing. Never was there such an outburst of popular feeling. In Boston, a hundred guns were fired on the common, and the bells of the city were rung for an hour to give utterance to the general joy. Similar scenes were witnessed in all parts of the United States. I have now before me the New York papers of August 1858, and from the memorable 5th, when the landing took place, to the end of the month, they contain hardly anything else than popular demonstrations in honor of the Atlantic Telegraph. It was indeed a national jubilee. It was natural that this overflow of public feeling should express itself towards one who was recognized as the author of the great work, which inspired such universal joy. Mr. Field, much to his own surprise, awoke and found himself famous. In twenty-four hours his name was on millions of tongues. Congratulations poured in from all quarters, from mayors of cities and governors of states, from all parts of the Union and the British provinces, from the President of the United States and the Governor-General of Canada. Mr. Buchanan telegraphed to Mr. Field at Trinity Bay, My dear sir, I congratulate you with all my heart on the success of the great enterprise with which your name is so honorably connected. Under the blessing of divine providence, I trust it may prove instrumental in promoting perpetual peace and friendship between the kindred nations. The popular estimate of the achievement and its author went still farther. With the natural exaggeration common to masses of men, when carried away by a sudden enthusiasm, the Atlantic Telegraph was hailed as an immense stride in the onward progress of the race, an event in the history of the world hardly inferior to the discovery of America or to the invention of the art of printing, and the name of its projector was coupled with those of Franklin Columbus. He who but yesterday was regarded as a visionary, today was exalted as a benefactor of his country and of mankind. This avalanche of praise was quite overwhelming. It is always embarrassing to be forced into sudden conspicuity, and to find oneself the object of general attention and applause. While feeling this embarrassment, Mr. Field could not but be gratified to witness the public joy at the success of the enterprise, and he was deeply touched and grateful for the appreciation of his own services. Probably all these public demonstrations did not go to his heart so much as private letters received from the other side of the Atlantic, from those who had shared the labors of the enterprise old companions in arms who had borne with him the heavy burden, and now were fully entitled to a share in the honor which was the reward of their common toil. As a specimen of the congratulations which came from beyond the sea, we quote a single passage from a letter of Mr. George Sawood, the secretary of the company in London, written immediately on receiving the news of the success of the enterprise. Under the impression of that event, he writes to Mr. Field, At last the great work is successful. I rejoice at it for the sake of humanity at large. I rejoice at it for the sake of our common nationalities, and last but not least, for your personal sake. I most heartily and sincerely rejoice with you, and congratulate you upon this happy termination to the trouble and anxiety, the continuous and persevering labor, and never-ceasing and sleepless energy, which the successful accomplishment of this vast and noble enterprise has cost you. Never was man more devoted, never did man's energy better deserve success than yours has done. May you in the bosom of your family reap those rewards of repose and affection, which will be doubly sweet from the reflection that you return to them after having been under providence the main and leading principle in conferring a vast and enduring benefit on mankind. If the contemplation of fame has a charm for you, you may well indulge in the reflection. 
for the name of Cyrus W. Field will now go onward to immortality, as long as that of the Atlantic Telegraph shall be known to mankind. The directors, whose faith and courage had been so severely tried, now felt double joy, for their friend and for themselves, as this glorious result of their united labors. Mr. Peabody wrote to Mr. Field that, His reflections must be like those of Columbus after the discovery of America. Sir Charles Wood and Sir John Pakington, who, as successive first lords of the Admiralty, had supported the enterprise with the constant aid of the British government, wrote letters of congratulation on the great work which had been carried through mainly by his energy and unconquerable will. They were above any petty national jealousy, and never imagined that it would detract aught from the just honor of England to award full praise to the courage and enterprise of an American. On his part, Mr. Field was equally anxious to acknowledge the invaluable aid given by others, aid without which the efforts of no single individual could command success. On his arrival at St. John's, he was welcomed with enthusiasm by the whole population. An address was presented to him by the Executive Council of Newfoundland, in which they offered their hearty congratulations on the success of the undertaking, which they recognized as chiefly due to him. Intimately acquainted as we have been, these are their words, with the energy and enterprise which have distinguished you from the commencement of the great work of telegraph connection between the old and new worlds, and feeling that under providence this triumph of science is mainly due to your well-directed and indomitable exertions, we desire to express to you our high appreciation of your success in the cause of the world's progress, etc. To which Mr. Phil replied, recognizing in turn the cordial support which he had always received from the government of Newfoundland. The Chamber of Commerce of St. John's also presented an address in similar terms to which he replied, after acknowledging their kind mention of his own labors and sacrifices. But it would not only be ungenerous, but unjust, that I should for a moment forget the services of those who were my co-workers in this enterprise, and without whom any labors of mine would have been unavailing. It would be difficult to enumerate the many gentlemen whose scientific acquirements and skill and energy have been devoted to the advancement of this work and who have so mainly produced the issue which has called forth this expression of your good wishes on my behalf. But I could not do justice to my own feelings did I fail to acknowledge how much is owing to Captain Hudson and the officers of the Niagara, whose hearts were in the work, and whose toil was unceasing, to Captain Damon of Her Majesty's ship Gorgon, for the sounding so accurately made by him last year, and for the perfect manner in which he led the Niagara over the great circle arc while laying the cable to Captain Otter of the Porcupine, for that careful survey made by him in Trinity Bay, and for the admirable manner in which he piloted the Niagara at night to her anchorage, to Mr. Everett, who has for months devoted his whole time to designing and perfecting the beautiful machinery that has so successfully paid out the cable from the ships, machinery so perfect in every respect that it was not for one moment stopped on board the Niagara until she reached her destination in Trinity Bay, to Mr. Woodhouse, who superintended the coiling of the cable, and zealously and ably cooperated with his brother engineer during the progress of paying out, to the electricians for their constant watchfulness, to the men for their almost ceaseless labor, and I feel confident that you will have a good report from the commanders, engineers, electricians on board the Agamemnon and Valorous, the Irish port of the fleet, to the directors of the Atlantic Telegraph Company for the time they have devoted to the undertaking without receiving any compensation for their services, and it must be a pleasure to many of you to know that the director, who has devoted more time than any other, was for many years a resident of this place, and well known to all of you. I allude to Mr. Brooking of London. 
to Mr. C. M. Lampson, a native of New England, but who has for the last twenty-seven years resided in London, who appreciated the great importance of this enterprise to both countries, and gave it most valuable aid, bringing his sound judgment and great business talent to the service of the company. To that distinguished American, Mr. George Peabody, and his worthy partner, Mr. Morgan, who not only assisted it most liberally with their means, but to whom I could always go with confidence for advice. Such acknowledgments, constantly repeated, showed a mind incapable of envy or jealousy, that was chiefly anxious to recognize the services of others, that they should receive from the public, both of England and America, the honors which they had so nobly earned. After two or three days' delay at St. John's, which the Niagara was obliged to make for coal, but which the people spent in festivity and rejoicing, she left for New York, where she arrived on the 18th, two weeks from the landing of the cable in Trinity Bay. These have been weeks of great excitement, yet not unmingled with suspense and anxiety. The public, eager for news, devoured everything that concerned the telegraph with impatience, but all was not satisfactory. Dispatches from Trinity Bay said the signals were continually passing over the cable, yet no news reached the public from the other side of the Atlantic. This was partially explained by a message from Mr. Field, sent from Trinity Bay to the Associated Press as early as the 7th. We landed here in the woods, and until the telegraph instruments are perfectly adjusted, no communications can pass between the two continents, but the electrical currents are received freely. You will have the earliest intimation when all is ready, but it may be some days before everything is perfected. The first through message between Europe and America will be from the Queen of Great Britain to the President of the United States, and the second his reply. But as the public grew impatient, and friends sent anxious inquiring messages, he telegraphed again from St. John's on the 11th. Before I left London, the directors of the Atlantic Telegraph Company decided unanimously that, after the cable was laid and the Queen's and President's messages were transmitted, the line should be kept for several weeks for the sole use of Dr. Whitehouse, Professor Thompson, and other electricians, to enable them to test thoroughly their several modes of telegraphing, so that the directors might decide which was the best and most rapid method for future use for it was considered that after the line should be once thrown open for business, it would be very difficult to obtain it for experimental purposes, even for a short time. Due notice will be given when the line will be ready for business, and the tariff of prices. Still the public were not satisfied, and many were beginning to doubt, when, on the 16th, it was suddenly announced that the Queen's message was received. It was as follows. To the President of the United States, Washington, the Queen desires to congratulate the President upon the successful completion of this great international work in which the Queen has taken the deepest interest. The Queen is convinced that the President will join with her in fervently hoping that the electric cable, which now connects Great Britain with the United States, will prove an additional link between the nations whose friendship is founded upon their common interest and reciprocal esteem. The Queen has much pleasure in thus communicating with the President and renewing to him her wishes for the prosperity of the United States. End of Part 1 of Chapter 11 of the Story of the Atlantic Telegraph Recorded by Alex C. Talander www.bookbanter.net